Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome once again to the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this here is episode 113, 113 episodes of podcasting dot dot dot. Ellipses, as they are known. But I'm getting a little too far ahead of myself, probably. This is, of course, the Iranian intelligence episode of the SLS cast. Because it turns out that the uh, telephone number to the intelligence agency in Iran is, in fact, 113. So, if you ever have a uh, need for Iranian intelligence, now you know. And the more you know, if you saw the Super Bowl or whatever, I don't know. Uh, this is Matt, of course. And this is everybody's favorite Sony Pictures Entertainment employee, Tim. Did you actually watch the Super Bowl? I, I forget. Are you a big football guy? I am. I am a huge Cowboys fan. However, uh, due to my work, I have to work for the Super Bowl. So I did not get to watch the Super Bowl. Oh, you like it because you get the money. You, you get a lot of money from it. Actually, this was the worst Super Bowl we've ever had. I mean, it was terrible. People were being sent home, like, at 6.40, and kickoff was 5.30. Our oh, time. really? Yeah, it was terrible. Wow. I have not ever seen it this bad. So, anyway, but yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I did all right for what I had to do. I mean, for what I did. No complaints on my end, but it was definitely freakishly slow. Uh, the day Papa John shed many of tears. Oh, yeah, pretty much. I was bored by the game. Since being out here, my, my girlfriend prefers watching the Puppy Bowl than the actual Super Bowl. So this was We the had first... that on, too. We had that on, too. The girls in the, at the store put it on and streamed it on a separate computer. Oh, really? Oh, so you yes. had, like, the dual computers going. Yes, yes. Did you ever find that the uh, what the puppies were doing was syncing with the actual football game? No, I was not even sure if they even attempted to do that or not. But um, I think right. I, I didn't. I didn't even care about this matchup. Um, I I am glad, however, that the Sea Chickens lost. So you know, good on the Pats, I guess. But I mean, it was just terrible. It was a dumb game. I'm glad that people were bored. Maybe people. I mean, I don't know. Did you enjoy the uh, halftime show? No, not at all. I didn't enjoy a single bit of it. it I it had way everything. too much. It had everything. It had, you know, Katy Boobs. Perry um, wearing the Blades of Glory outfit. It had her riding in on, like, um, a fucking Voltron lion. It had shark suits um, and the more you know star. I mean... How how could you not enjoy this? And I didn't even see it, and I know that all these things took place. By that time, my all that spinach dip I had eaten and deviled <laughs> eggs have kind of like set in, so I was like sunken into the couch, just like blatantly staring at the screen. Oh. Trying to figure out how I was going to get home afterwards. That I mean, that, that's exactly what was processing through the four hours that the Super Bowl was on. It's like, okay... Let's move on. But, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Like, every time I watch the Super Bowl, uh, I mean, football in general, but specifically the Super Bowl, 
it's it's super sexist. I just can't get that out of my mind. Like ever since I remember hearing uh, the NFL commissioner or whatever the hell he's called, he came out and said, "Well, we need to make football more appealing to women." Okay, so what this is what we're gonna do. So we're gonna have all these fat old men who you know that are little that are horn dogs. And we're not going to put, like, fat old women or, you know, like, maybe normal-looking women. We're just going to have, you know, these supermodels, you know, just going out and not saying that, you know, it's their fault. You know, I mean, like, these women are, are gorgeous and they're pretty and I'm sure they're super smart. But whenever they're shown on the screen, they're reading something from the teleprompter and then, they're, you, then like, you cut away from that. And then you cut back to uh, the one lady that's up in the in the commentator's booth and... The whole highlight of her being there was that the horny old dude sitting next to her just kept, like, hugging her and making all these, like, references and innuendos to her. And yet everybody's totally fine with that. That's what kind of goes through my mind during the Super Bowl. I'll just probably just stop watching it. Well, most people I know only ever watched it for commercials anyway. But now with the advent of the YouTubes... um it doesn't even matter because they release all the damn commercials before the Super Bowl online. Yeah, what the hell? What's the point of that? <clears throat> I don't know. Oh, did, uh, apparently, though, some life insurance company like totally was a Debbie Downer, though. And oh, had some yeah. ad where, oh, wait up for me. Oh, I'm never going to get to bike with my friends or get married or have kids or because I died. <laughs> it was like an overflowing bathtub. <laughs> And yeah, I was like, wow, that's got to suck. Nothing like a life check while you're in the middle of a football game than a dead child. Exactly. Yeah. But back to the Bud Light commercials, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, cool. Well, so how was your week, sir? My week was good. A, a lot of things happened. Uh, I, I wouldn't sell any Linux, you know, uh, just on a whim. That's re- one of the reasons why the last episode got posted a good day late. And that was kind of the reason why the, uh, oh, the and, rapture and also happened. for the piss-off message? Is that... Or yeah, well, I mean, that was a little get... bit... I, I had a couple drinks by that time also, and ah. it was late, about to fall asleep. But, you know, it worked. We've had more hits on that episode than we have had in a while. It's because the rapture. I think people just, you know, randomly search rapture. And some poor Christian family gets on there. Oh my God! What has happened? And what an episode for them Sally, to listen turn to. Turn it off also. now. <laughs> Maybe Jesus us. wants us to to make our own sexual patent. Does that mean that Jesus says that we should get rid of all the X Men Blu rays? We should do that right now. <laughs> God hates Marvel. <laughs> uh, we're going to hell for that bit. <sighs> You nah. are too for laughing. That's right. God saw you. <laughs> That's right. No, God, I didn't. I didn't laugh at that. Shut up and get on the bus with Quentin Cousinier and Scorsese. You're going to fucking hell. Uh, but yeah, but the Annie Lennox concert. And I gotta say, uh, are you an Annie She's still Lennox? Weird? She's still like really weird. She's weird in the best way possible. I mean, we her weird now is normal. Like, <laughs> given all the other shit that's going on, like in in life and entertainment in general. She's pretty normal. I mean, she came out, she sung beautifully. It was for PBS, their, uh, what, what is it, their Great Performance series. So she was there promoting the album that she just came out with called Nostalgia. And it's all these old classic songs like you put, I Put a Spell on You and Georgia on My Mind by Ray Charles. 
So she was doing all that. So she was performing that album, and she sang beautifully. But I think a lot of people was expecting her to sing some of her classic hits. Right, I don't know, Eurythmics like you know, from the Eurythmics or something. Yeah. Sure. So throughout the song, you either had these screaming queens, or you had these drunk wives, or these drunk women just spout, just yelling all this stuff out here. Annie, broken glass, broken glass. Let's go into the West, Andy. Or I called her Andy, but her name is actually Annie. Let's go into the West, Andy. <laughs> Where's the Eurythmics? And then, like, this one queen, he was in the... I, I didn't see him, but, like, I, he was, like, having an orgasm every time, like, she sung, uh, sung like, a high note or held a note for longer than, I don't know, a second. You just hear him go, <laughs> That is an exact quote. <laughs> But louder and more squeaky. That's awesome. I was excited as I've ever been at a concert and the most, like, uptight. Like, I peeled all the skin off my thumbs. Because I was just waiting for that that one person to say something else. Yeah. Oh, and then that drunk woman got up on stage. And, like, awkwardly stood next to her. She had to stop and somebody had to come out and get this woman off the stage. <laughs> like, she walked up to her piano. <laughs> And she was in the middle of singing, uh, I forgot what the song's called, but it's something like, and then there was a lunatic is one of the first lines. And it was funny because, like, she was about to say, and then there's this lunatic. And what do you know, a lunatic from the audience <laughs> came up on stage. Boy. Oh, yeah. my God. No, I'll never forget the first time I ever saw her live was on Saturday Night Live. And, I mean, I was just like, what's the matter with her? <laughs> and people were like, no, that's how she is. And I'm like... No, seriously, what's the matter with her? <laughs> and she, she was like prancing around kind of like a horse, um, uh, tangoing in the night with a dolphin. That's kind of how I thought. And so every time I ever get a chance to see her live, I have done so since. Uh, just because, you know, her and Natalie Merchant, although I don't see Natalie Merchant doing anything anymore. Um, but yeah, Natalie Merchant, also exceptionally weird. When whilst performing, um, great great artist. I mean, and everything. Don't get me wrong, but just really weird. I mean, you know, is that when she tore the the Celsius. picture of the Pope in half? That would be Sinead O'Connor. Oh, I th- oh, you're it's right. It's nice to know I'm not the only one who fucks up chicks' names on this show. Because after I was listening to the show earlier today, even when I was uh, coming back from school, and I heard myself fuck up Kirsten. I didn't even get the fucking first name right. Kirsten Dunst and Kristen Stewart. And I'm just sitting there. God damn it, Matt. What the fuck? And like the horn is just going off. Beep, beep, beep. You know, yeah. So. Well, they both have short hair. <laughs> Annie Lennox and <laughs> one, Chanel. One, one, one looks crazier than the other with the short other. hair. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> anyway. So. Apparently, we have some news of the weird we need to get to. We do, yes. But I'll let you go first, because yours is definitely more interesting. Okay. And and that's that's a reason. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay, here we go, folks. From MSN.com via ET Online. (laughs) It's so hard to... All right. Here we go. <clears throat> Florence Henderson on sex at 80. 
I actually have a friend with benefits. <laughs> That's right, folks. Every time you can watch Brady Bunch going forward, you can know that she's getting it on. <laughs> Florence Henderson is on Retirement Living TV, but she's not retiring her youthful ways. The Brady Bunch mother is getting very candid on uh, about what sex is like at 80 years old. Quote... I still feel like I'm 28. There's no age limit on the enjoyment of sex. It keeps getting better. End quote. But why is it better? Her theory is, quote, you learn to do things with more experience, intelligence, and the ability to choose more wisely. End quote there. As for her love life, she admits... Say, you you learn to juice more wisely? Uh, no, it, with intelligent, with uh, more experience, intelligence, and the ability to choose. Oh, I was like, what do you mean by juice? What are you juicing She's for? She's got the tiger juicer thing from the other old guy who was like the bodybuilder. I don't know. Anyway, she says, as for her love life, she admits, quote, I actually have a friend with benefits. <laughs> I really enjoy his company, but I'm sure he sees other people, as I do. <laughs> This is what I love the most. Oh, end quote there. Sorry, end quote. And this is what I love most. While she did not say the age of her friend with benefits, she did say that she likes younger men in their 60s. <laughs> quote, I like to date younger men because they need to keep up with me. End quote. <laughs> oh, man. And this is a great picture. They actually have a good picture over here. I mean, I would not have ever guessed that she was 80 years old based on this picture. In the article. Um, but what do you think? Uh, are, are you glad to know Mrs. Brady's still getting it on there, Tim? Ah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's it's good. But it's it's kind of hard when you when you listen to this and you know that you're gonna about to have, like, a conversation with your 80-year-old grandmother, like, <laughs> tomorrow. Well, I guess this is one of the few times it's good to... It, 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 it's good if you can say that it's good. I guess this is one of the few times that I suppose it's better to know that your grandmothers are passed on because you won't ever have to have that conversation with them. I think we made the the one the listener who whose grandparents just recently passed away right now they're like thank you Matt. Thank you. You you gave me the reason, the hope and that drive to fight through my sadness. I was so depressed until I found out that thanks to Florence Henderson, I don't have to talk about sex with my grandparents. Thank you, SLS cast. Cue, cue the tub overflowing. Oh, no, wait. These are old people. So cue the medicine thing. The, just the little empty bottle of medicine falling over. Someone hitting the assisted suicide button on the machine. You know, we can cue to those things. Life insurance by SLS. And my bit of news of the weird is from cinemablend.com, and it's an article here entitled, Little Kid Suspended for Brazen Use of Lord of the Rings Magic. Yes, this is written dun, by dun, Joseph dun, Baxter. Dun, dun. Yes, this is uh, the one, I am definitely referring to the one ring, the one ring, the one <laughs> ring. is what brings us together. <laughs> Do you have the wing? The one ring to rule them all, especially... In the, the classroom. And it says this. In these darkest of times, it appears that a newly discovered threat has arisen, plunging all of mankind into a state of catatonic fear, from which there is no recovery. A ring. To be precise, the ring to which we are, we are referring is the One Ring. 
crafted by the Dork Lord. The Dork. Oh my God. <laughs> crafted the by the Dork Lord. Is, is there a dwarf? Wait, I thought the there were dwarves. No, it's dark. Is that a dark dwarf? A dork? That's racist. You can't call him Dark Dork. <laughs> Sauron. <laughs> and the molten mass of Mount Doom. <sighs> However, according to Odessa America, a Kermit, <laughs> Texas fourth grader, a- a.k.a. public enemy number one, named Aiden Stewart, brought a Hobbit-esque replica of the ring to class, claiming it could make a classmate disappear. This was perceived by those in charge of the school as a threat, putting young Mr. Stewart in a bit of a predicament, resulting in him actually being removed from school. So, what's all that hoopla about? Well, if you ask me, it's about the safety of Middle... er, I mean, Texas. As Aiden's father, Jason, tells the NY Daily News, quote, I assure you, my son lacks the magical powers necessary to threaten his friend's existence. If he did, I'm sure he'd bring him right back. End quote. However, the school district isn't buying it, as little Aiden remains suspended for his act of pseudo-magical mischief. So how did this all come about, you ask? How did this all come about? <laughs> all, all I know is that while you're sitting there reading it, I'm going, please don't be Texas, please don't be Texas. God damn it, Texas! <laughs> <laughs> And of course, it's got to be like fucking no. It's got to be like West Texas oil patch nothingness. Well, out here in Odessa, we don't take kindly to them Lord, dark lords with invisible rings. Yeah, what gets me is that if it was Harry Potter, you know, I can maybe see like <laughs> better saying, not bring oh, a twig. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, he's a demon. You know, he's into Satan. But it's Lord of the Rings. <sighs> when Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter came out, I was in high school at that time. Like, Christian America was all up Harry Potter's ass saying, this is a movie about Satan and devil. And it was like, well, how about Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings is more dark. It is darker than Harry. No, Lord of the Rings is a story about Jesus Christ. No, that's uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, uh, okay. (laughs) I know what you were getting at, but yeah. Because they they did have that. I mean, because Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is an allegory for... um, Christ and Christianity and coming all back, but yeah, definitely done in a complete fantasy with death and dismemberment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Lord of the Rings is like Bible-esque, I mean, something about, they liked it because Tolkien uh, t- taught at a Bible college or taught some kind of religion, oh, religious class. so what class. we need to do is get Rowling to teach at a Bible college for a day and then Harry Potter school. It's not like Harry Potter's not making billions of dollars This is as bad as, like, when the kid got suspended for eating, chewing a Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun. Crude! A crude shape of a gun. And then he got suspended for point. I mean, what's next? Gun-shaped cloud in sky spotted by students. Entire student body suspended. I mean, this is getting ridiculous. You can't threaten somebody with a fictional ring, <laughs> with a fictional prop from a movie based on a fantasy novel. Somebody <laughs> might get hurt. Oh, but the last uh, paragraph here. However, little did the kid know it was actually his father's cock ring. So I think I think that was the reason. To be well, you might be able to put an eye out with that then. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that is the news of the weird. Okay. Well, then let's go ahead. And now that we have completely made a mockery of anything like the news, we should go ahead and get to the real the news. First up from me, from Gawker.com, courtesy of Gabrielle Bluestone. Suge Knight just killed a guy on a movie set. Ah, because apparently making a movie about NWA just wasn't enough. No, no, no. Let's see here. Death Row Records founder Suge Knight ran over a man, possibly killing you. Actually, he uh, does. Uh... <laughs> Uh, this is just, this report is all over the place, I'm sorry. Alright, here we go. <sighs> Suge Knight got into a, this is a, I'm sorry, from TMZ. Quote, Suge Knight got into a fight on the set of a film project in Compton and ran over a man and we're told the victim is dead. Uh, we're told the fight broke out between Suge and two crew members. Suge got back into his car, took the wheel and threw the vehicle in reverse and ran over a bystander. Um... <clears throat> end quote there the LA Times then updated for this Gawker Gawker article um, that uh, he had reportedly fled the scene and was going to turn himself into the LAPD uh, but now we have also the quote, quote, the confrontation began around 3 p.m. when Knight and two unidentified men began arguing on the set of Straight Outta Compton, a biopic about the group NWA, said Captain John Carina of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department Detectives Unit. At least one of the victims was a member of the film crew, Corona said. About 20 minutes after the alleged argument on set, the victims visited Tom's Burger near Central and East Rose... Uh, Rosecrans Avenues, authorities said. Knight is believed to have followed the men in his truck before running them over the parking lot, Karina said. Witnesses said the truck hit the men, then backed over them before fleeing the scene. End quotes there from the LA Times. Uh, following up here, one 55-year-old man died and another 51-year-old man was injured. It's being investigated as a homicide. So... Um, Ultimately, he was arrested on suspicion of, mur of murder, and bail was set at $2 million. Again, that comes from the Times there as well. Um, this is definitely a guy who has, from all accounts, gotten away with a whole lot of shit for way too long. And I'm pretty sure his luck just ran out. Because you can't get into a fight with somebody and then wait until the argument is over. Let them go get food chase them down in your truck and run over them and then back over them and expect to get away with it. I just, you know, I don't know. What do you think there, Tim? Is this all just bad, you know, uh, like just some terribly misguided, desperate attempt to get publicity for this film? No. It's Compton. Yeah. Bound to happen. Compton. That there should be go. their slogan. 
Welcome to East LA. It's bound to happen. To happen. <laughs> nice. All right, what do you got for us, sir? Already from io9.com. Mr. Peabody and Sherman failed because it was too clever. It's the name of this article here, written by Catherine Trinicosta. So, DreamWorks hasn't been doing all that well. They laid off over 500 people. Uh, despite having a success, one really big successful film this past year, which was How to Train Your Dragon 2. And it says this, Deadline reports that DreamWorks Animation will start releasing two films a year instead of three and attempt to reduce cost and increase profit. Other shakeups include the firing of 500 employees and the closing of its Northern California office. It's also losing its vice chairman, chief operator, excuse me, chief operating officer, and chief of marketing. If all of that wasn't bad enough, BOO, Bureau of Otherworldly Operations, which stars, among others, Seth Rogen, Melissa McCarthy, and Bill Murray, is going back into production and has lost its June 5th, 2015 release date, with no word on when it'll be seen. All of this despite having the highest grossing animated film of last year, which was How How to Train Your Dragon 2. Not How to Drain Your Dragon 2. However, that would be a great porno title based on a movie. How to Drain Your Dragon 2, starring Matt Quinton. The most depressing part of the story comes from an analysis of DreamWorks Animation's problems from Deadline's Anthony D'Alessandro. Quote, Last March's Mr. Peabody and Sherman, based on the 1959 character from Jay Ward's Rocky and Bullwinkle show cartoon series, was just out of its time, 55 years later. And, as one marketing consultant puts it, too clever for audiences. When the film was being tested, a constant comment from mothers, the decision makers in the household, when it comes to heading to the multiplex, was that Mr. Peabody was too sophisticated. Moms don't go to the movies to think, but to escape. The $145 million gamble opened a 32.2 million stateside, finaled at $111.5 million, and only made 1.5 times that its domestic box office abroad, which came out to be $161.4 million. Stellar DWA titles, DreamWorks Animation titles, can be close to three times that. That's a lot of money. Lost, especially. And in all quotes there. But what really got gets me is that they're saying that this movie was too clever. Um, I know, Matt, you enjoyed it more so with me. I didn't care for this title too much. I personally didn't think it was clever or witty enough, to be honest. Do you think that's just a cop-out? Yes. Now, don't get me wrong. I... Uh... Having this is this was one of those ones where age played a big part in the enjoyment of the film. Um, I, I am you know decrepit and old, and Tim is you know young and flourishing or whatever. So back in episode sixty six uh, was uh, from March of twenty fourteen was when we actually reviewed this movie. So you can go and check out episode sixty six if you want, if you haven't already. Um, I gave the film a three and a half. Tim gave it a two and a half. My three and a half rating was based a lot on my nostalgia factor for having enjoyed it when I was a kid and being able to share it going forward. That's not to say that the movie did not have its flaws by any stretch of the imagination, as was evidenced by Tim's review, where he pulled out with just an okay on this thing. Um, 
I really do. I agree with you, Tim. They are definitely copping out here. But um, I think that basically something that Mr. Peabody and Sherman goes to show you is that just basically not everything is ripe for a remake or a reboot. And I think that's what's costing him here in the long run is a lack of uh, is a lack of truly original ideas. Sure, of course. And I think uh, what's also at fault is is that they're trying to appeal to everyone. And I think with a movie like this that that pertains to history, time travel, and uh, the type of humor that embodies the story of Mr. Peabody or the characters of Mr. Peabody and Sherman, it'll be kind of, I think it, that's kind of a difficult one to to pull off. So I really don't understand like what, I mean, what, what else could they have done, you know? So, America. <laughs> All right. Well, moving from America to Taiwan, uh, from MSN.com via Routers, or Reuters, I guess I should probably say that correctly. Uh, ceiling Collapse kills one on Martin Scorsese set in Taiwan. All right, folks. One person died and two were injured on Thursday when a... And today, by the way, is the 2nd of February. Uh, go, you know, Groundhog's Day and all that good shit. Uh, on Thursday, when a ceiling collapsed on the set in Taiwan of Martin Scorsese's upcoming film, Silence, and this is coming to us from a spokeswoman for the production, uh, the three were working as contractors to reinforce a building on the CMPC Studios lot that had been deemed unsafe for production. When the accident happened, spokeswoman Leslie Dart said in a statement, quote, everyone is in shock and sorrow and expresses their deepest concern and sympathy to the families of the individual who died and those who were injured, end quote. <clears throat> it did not detail the uh, severity of the injuries. Silence, which is still in pre-production, is the Oscar-winning director's first theatrical film since his 2013 tale of greed and excess, The Wolf of Wall Street. Adapted from Japanese author Shusaku Endo's novel of the same name, Silence tells the story of 17th century Portuguese Jesuit missionaries who face violence and persecution in Japan. The movie will star Liam Neeson, Andrew Garfield, and Adam Driver. So... <clears throat> Um, it's always sad when these things happen. I mean, even going all the way as far back, we, I know we discussed this last year with, uh, woman who, a uh, person who died in the railway accident. Um, and then of course, even as far back as, uh, the Iger sanction and, uh, you know, Twilight Zone the movie and all that kind of stuff. But this is one where when you, you really have to kind of dig into this, this is all very much pre-production stuff. And it sounds really more like that the... Uh, set incident was happening on some place that they were actually attempting to fix to make it okay to shoot um, and not really anything to do with Scorsese himself so you know just whenever you see crazy things like that always make sure to read the article cautionary tale as it were but news nonetheless so carry on sir alrighty so India just op or just came out with this past year their number one film ever, box office-wise. This film, which is entitled PK, has grossed so far uh, in U.S. dollars and USD $100 million. That is right. Uh, this movie PK tells the story of an alien. I'm actually going to read this little blurb about it here on Wikipedia. 
It tells the story of an alien who comes to Earth on a research mission, he befriends a television journalist, and questions religious dogmas and superstitions. And it was Deadline.com that I first uh, read about this on, and this article called Amir Khan's Blockbuster PK to get wide release in China. It says, Amir Khan's PK, the highest grossing Indian film of all time, will get a wide release in China on 3,500 prints through China Film Group and Hoxia. The news was announced in a signing ceremony in Beijing, attended by India's ambassador to China, Ashok Kantha. PK was released in India December 19th last year and has been a box office sensation at home and abroad. The film, a satirical comedy, finds an alien landing in India and traveling around the country. Despite, or perhaps because of its success, the film also garnered some protests from Hindu nationalists who accused the filmmaker of mocking some Hindu deities. PK reunites the filmmaking team behind Three Idiots, which also was released, and performed well in mainland China and Hong Kong on its release there in December 2011. A Chinese dub version was released alongside the original Hindi version, helping make it an unusually big hit in China and surrounding East Asian markets. End all quotes. Uh, so this is kind of like a one-two punch story here. This movie makes, again, equivalent to US dollars, $100 million dollars, which is number one. But on top of that, they're selling it to China and they're going to market over in China. It's just very interesting to see that China, Asia, is a huge market. We go there, you know, look at all of uh, all the all the pop culture influences we have in China, musically, as well as uh, movie and TVs, especially movies. And that's why you also see uh, the movies that we make here, for example, Godzilla and other Marvel movies, we incorporate a lot of Asian actors or a lot of scenes that take place, these big action scenes that take place in Asia, so the movie can can do well over there as well because people, that'll give uh, them more of a reason to go see the movie is that they have something to relate to. It's not just another action, American action blockbuster. You know, it's kind of like a joint union in filmmaking and, you know, India's doing the same exact thing. I encourage you guys to go and check out uh, the trailer. However, I must warn you, it is going to be something that you are not expecting. It is nothing like American blockbusters. The culture in India is completely different. Not completely different, but uh, their humor is different. Their style of filmmaking is different. And, you know, ultimately their audiences are different. You know, they their audiences expect different things than American audiences. So watch it, check it out, keep an, uh, keep, you know, keep an open mind about it. And just remember, this is the highest grossing movie in that country. PK. This is going to be the last bit of news from me. So we don't uh, keep going completely over on time here. Uh, comes to us from Tess uh, Gerritsen.com. This is from her blog. This is internationally best-selling author Tess Gerritsen's website in and of itself. This is from her blog. My Gravity Lawsuit and How It Affects Every Writer Who Sells to Hollywood. Yesterday, the court granted Warner Brothers' motion to dismiss my lawsuit against them. While Warner Brothers crows victory, the judge has in fact left the door open for me to pursue my claim, allowing my legal team 20 days to revise our complaint and address the single issue of concern, the corporate relationship between Warner Brothers and New Line Productions. <clears throat> Pardon me. For those unfamiliar uh, with 
the actual lawsuit, you can go back to her blog and goes into it. But a quick wrap-up of the facts. In 1999, I sold the film rights to my book Gravity to New Line Productions. The contract stipulates that if a movie is made based on my book, I will receive, based upon credit, a production bonus, and a percentage of net profits. The book is about a female medical doctor slash astronaut who is stranded aboard the International Space Station after the rest of her crew is killed in a series of accidents. A biological hazard aboard ISS traps her in quarantine, unable to return to Earth. While my film was in development, I rewrote the third act of the film script with scenes of satellite debris destroying the ISS and the lone surviving female astronaut adrift in her spacesuit. Alfonso Cuaron was attached to direct my film, a fact I did not know at the time. My project never made it out of development. In 2008, Warner Brothers acquired New Line Productions. The takeover was rumored to be brutal, with numerous New Line employees losing their jobs overnight. Sometime around 2008-2009, Alfonso Cuaron wrote his original screenplay, Gravity, about a female astronaut who is the sole survivor after her colleagues are killed by satellite debris destroying their spacecraft. She is left adrift in her spacesuit and is later stranded aboard the International Space Station. I noted the similarities, but I had no evidence of any connection between Quaron and my project. Without proof, I could not publicly accuse them of theft, so when asked about the similarities by fans and reporters, I told them it could be coincidental. In February 2014, my literary agent was informed of Quaron's attachment to my project back in 2000. Now the similarities between my book and Quaron's movie could no longer be dismissed as coincidence. I sought legal help. We filed a breach of contract complaint that April. Please note, this is not a case of copyright infringement. Warner Brothers, through its ownership of New Line, also controls the film rights to my book. They had every right to make the movie, but they claim they have no obligation to honor my contract with New Line. This is why every writer who sells to Hollywood should be alarmed. She then goes on, and that is the crux of everything. I'm going to stop reading. You can continue reading on the rest of that blog post and uh, anything else that is going. <clears throat> but basically... From there on out, she's now saying that if you have a deal with a studio and that studio gets bought out, whoever buys out the studio can completely screw you over. Uh, that's more or less the crux of her case. Um, the 20 days that she has basically is to go back and just establish the fact that Warner Brothers did know about the fact that the IP that was Gravity via New Line was in fact hers. And, we'll, and they need to go back and... Uh, establish that because currently they're just saying Warner Brothers is saying hey we bought New Line that's a New Line IP and that's what we used um, and clearly this is not the case considering her book is called Gravity I mean the, the it's basically you know a cautionary tale I guess um, but it's definitely I feel bad for her, and I certainly hope that uh, she gets her day, because a lot of people are saying that in order to protect Warner Brothers' interests, instead of just paying her, you know, 500000 bucks, you know, they're going to spend $2 million on legal fees just so that they don't have to pay her anything, which means they would be able to do this to anybody else going forward. I'm just going to breeze through this right here. Uh, this is from Variety.com. Uh, they posted this article just recently about, entitled Broken Hollywood, the Biz's Top Players 
call out ways industry needs to change. And what Variety did is that they reached out to 22 various what they call luminaries uh, in hopes that they would get these little essays in return from these luminaries explaining what they think Hollywood needs to do in order to, you know, like how, how, how Hollywood should change their ways uh, to become what they think would be a better Hollywood for everyone, which means putting out better content and not making so many freaking sequels to movies and rebooting shit and just reinventing the same thing over and over again every two years or so. Um, however, there are all these, you know, like 22 plus little essays here, but I'm going to focus on two. And these are super short, little little paragraphs here. One of them is from the CEO of Fox Filmed Entertainment. And his name is Jim Gainopoulos. And here he's talking about why it's good for hot, for studios to make these these big tentpole movies or or these like uh, like why Marvel it's good for Marvel to make all to make these various superhero movies and why it's prevalent now and why it's not a bad thing. And he says this quote: "If you do sequels badly, that's the problem." I think the risk in sequels is for Hollywood to take the audience for granted, to assume you only have to give them a little more. We as a studio are very careful to avoid that. We do that by introducing new filmmaker voices. We have to work hard to constantly advance the mythology of a property that people love. If you bring all the elements together, you'll succeed. And then the second person here is uh, is Walt Disney chairman Alan Horn. And keep in mind, Walt Disney does own the rights to Marvel and their prospective properties. Quote, I've long been a believer in the power of tent poles to drive our business, but there's a special place in my heart for smart, emotional films on a smaller scale. I think that's true for all of us who love movies. Great stories come in all sizes, but the economics of business have made it increasingly difficult for smaller movies to be profitable and, in turn, to get made. Audiences have so many things competing for their time and attention that just having a good movie with big stars from a reputable studio isn't enough anymore. It's extremely difficult to break through that noise. End all quotes. And lastly here, uh, We gave X-Men and Planet of the Apes substantial budgets to allow the filmmakers the creative freedom to realize their vision. In the case of X-Men, we were reuniting two sets of X-Men casts from First Class and from the earlier films. The nature of the story and the number of characters required a bigger budget. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes was told from the perspective of the apes, so it required more apes. The critical response and the audience response were greater than the fan base prior to the movie. That's the other benefit of a sequel. It will introduce a new audience that may have been aware of prior movies, but hadn't connected to them. End all quotes. So, if anything, this goes to show that they think more is better, because that also proves to be better marketing. You know, And I think if, if you are really annoyed with all these tentpole films and the idea of reinventing this, you know, reworking that, you know, oh, let's do another sequel. You gotta, I mean, this, I'm not saying start a freaking revolution or anything, but come out and say somebody, something, speak up. Uh, don't go and see these movies for the sake of going to them. I'm seriously, I mean, if you, if you, I mean, don't be the guy that's like, oh, I'm, I don't want to go see it. 
you know, I, but I, I love, I, I'm a sucker for these movies. You know, like if you know, if you think you're going to hate it and you know you're going to hate it, what's the point of going to see it? For example, Transformers. Don't go see it just because they have Transformers in it. That is not a good reason. And unfortunately, I think uh, a part of part of the culture now, the movie culture, the big tentpole summer blockbuster culture <laughs> or whatever, people have, have started have become uh, just have been raised on these big budget movies like you have to go or you're going to feel like you're missing out on something. You're not. People will forget about them in like a month. So that's my news. All right, well, then I guess that's going to conclude the news and move us on to Furry Square. Yes. All right, so this week we're doing um, oddball or odd man out kind of movies. And movies that were made uh, not necessarily, uh, basically made uh, in a current time frame, but definitely kind of set aside. They just kind of stick out like sore thumbs. And, and, um, And have basically more or less been lost, you know, kind of tossed to the wayside in in one form or another. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that people have forgotten them, uh, that they don't have cult followings necessarily, but just that the industry as a whole kind of left these movies behind. Um, For me, I'm going to start off with uh, Mystery Men. Uh, It's a 1999 superhero comedy film. And it's basically exploring the idea of People, for me, anyway, this movie explores the idea that there is a superhero in all of us. And what it means to actually encompass that which makes us super. And while the tale is, you know, wildly crazy uh, and actually does use real superheroes and real supervillains uh i'm i thought just greg kinnear was absolutely fantastic in this film uh this movie is definitely not one that was known for doing well um but i don't think it's be I, i think it's because people didn't understand what the movie was trying to do. I think people were expecting some kind of action comedy, and I think people were expecting it to be an action comedy of the day, um, instead of being just a really funny story that has a heart. Um, And I think a lot of times when a movie gets misunderstood, it causes it to... um, It it causes it to, to basically fall to the wayside over time so for me this movie is fantastic um you've got to check it out it is definitely one of the one of the most original movies you will ever see in your life um just the ragtag group of people who want to be heroes in a city that already has an established superhero and established supervillains ah mystery men 
All right, next up for me, Joe versus the Volcano. This is from this is a 1990 romantic comedy film, and this is a movie is written directed by John Patrick Shanley, but this has got to be probably. Quite frankly, it's I would say it's my favorite Tom Hanks movie. Um, and Tom Hanks has done a lot of good movies. But there's just something about the honesty with which this story is told. Uh, Meg Ryan, uh, and of course, everybody always thinks, you know, oh, you've got mail, oh, Sleepless in Seattle. No, 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 this was their first pairing. Check them out. If you love that little chemistry between Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, this is their first pairing. Meg Ryan actually plays multiple roles in this film. And uh, she does a fantastic job. And it's interesting because the role that she plays mirrors the role that Joe... Or not not the role that Joe is playing, but the state of mind that Joe is experiencing in his life. And this is about a hypochondriac who gets a death sentence, a rigged death sentence, as it were, in the form of a brain cloud. Um... And decides to go and uh, live like a king and die like a man. And and throw himself into a volcano to help his company out or whatever. Now, uh, the misadventure begins there, but definitely takes a lot of twists and turns. um, Where you get uh, someone who I thought was very underrated, but um, Ossie Davis. Now, Ossie Davis is kind of like the Obi-Wan Kenobi in this movie. And if there was anyone who was ever kind of like the precursor to Morgan Freeman, it's Ossie Davis. And I guarantee you, when you watch this movie, you will understand. But this movie also, it was a hit with critics, but was a pretty big box office bomb. Now, it did make more than its budget, but not by a whole lot. I love this movie. Um... It makes me smile just thinking about it. So I would highly encourage you to check this movie out. Last but not least for me is going to be 1997's Chasing Amy. Now, in terms of... Now, you're probably wondering, wait a minute, but people know this movie. People, You're right. But people know this movie thanks to Kevin Smith. If you talk to people, especially today, outside of the realm of Kevin Smith and people who are fans of Kevin Smith, most people will not have a clue as to what you're talking about. But this is probably his best film in terms of actually dealing with complex issues and amazing relationships. And it shows that people have insecurities and people have places that they are in their life and how they can, as quickly as they cross and meet, they can just keep on going. And a lot of people don't realize a a lot of the amazing subtleties that are in this movie that take place between Ben Affleck's character and Joy Lauren Adams' character. I was just really disappointed that um, you haven't really seen a lot of Joy Lauren Adams. I thought for sure she was, you know, going to be... Superstar after all this. Um, there's there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of Kevin Smith humor throughout this movie. But the core of the story is someone who wants... Who, who believes in what they want so badly that when they get it, they don't know they have it. 
and they let it slip away. It's just absolutely amazing to watch this happen. And you will see yourself in this movie, I guarantee it. Some relationship you have had is going to mirror this for you. And it's gone to, I mean, unless you're a fan of Kevin Smith, you don't know this movie. And I really hope that you will check this out because I think this is just an amazing entrance into Kevin Smith films. I think it allows you to appreciate the depth to which you truly can tell a story while at the same time getting the humor that is view askew. So, again, my movies, Mystery Men, Joe vs. the Volcano, and Chasing Amy. Let's get on with it, Tim. Alrighty, first off for me is actually Mystery Men. Yes, the 1999 film directed by Kika Usher. And why I enjoyed this movie is because when it came out, I was 11. And I couldn't wait to see this movie again. Though my dad wouldn't let me go and see it at the movie theater for a second time because he didn't think it was worth throwing more money at it. Uh, I, I remember when it first came out on VHS to go rent. I waited outside patiently with my mother when the Kroger video store opened up. Yes, when you would used to rent movies, VHS tapes. <laughs> or I, we might have had a DVD player at this time. At the Kroger grocery store. Cool stuff, I know. What made this movie interesting? Well, Kinka Usher was a, uh, or is a music video director, a veteran music video director, had a very interesting, I guess one would say, artistic visual style or visual flair to his music videos. Now, with Mystery Men, they incorporated that music video flair to a superhero movie. And so the movie kind of gave you this feeling of some of the superhero movies that were coming out at that time. For example, Batman and Robin, uh, Batman Forever, a lot of the Joel Schumacher Batman movies, as well as some of the other, like, over-the-top, kind of, like, science fiction-y movies, kind of had this cool, dark, uh, deep, rich comic tone to it. You look at Dark City, Alex Boyce's Dark City, though it's a science fiction movie, not an action movie, or superhero movie, you still kind of get that feeling like, oh, man, like, there, this feels more like an entertaining popcorn flick than it is feeling like you're watching, like, Batman Begins or Man of Steel, where it's more like, oh, they're trying to be dark and gritty, not necessarily a popcorn fun time, you know, for example. What was cool about Mystery Men is that this movie came out before any of the big superhero team movies, like X-Men. The first X-Men came out the year prior. So in 2000, X-Men came out. And then you had the Fantastic Four movies, you had Spider-Man, those came out years later. And so that goes to show you how... In a, I mean, in, in a way, Mystery Men is kind of special. Though it's not the greatest movie... Uh, Joke-wise, really, I mean, it's it's pretty much visual fluff and character fluff that makes it fun. But also, the movie riffs off the um, the idea of the ragtag, downtrodden superhero buddy movie. You know, it, it kind of riffs on all those all those goofy cliches that you see now in all those superhero movies, which is equally as entertaining. You know, so I actually rewatched Mystery Men. When it was on Netflix instant, I don't think it is now or not, but I watched it this past year, and though I enjoyed it, it definitely, you know, you can definitely see its age, 
But again, it was in a way. I know this doesn't really fit into the three square, but in a way, it was kind of before its time. You know, it you, nobody has kind of replicated it. It's however, it has just kind of become the norm. You know, to me, this was the this is like the ver- the first superhero origin type of movie that kind of hit the market right before all this mass Marvel pop culture, you know, extravaganza stuff kind of blew up. So Mystery Men for me is the first one. The second one here is from 2004, and it is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. This is the Wes Anderson film starring Bill Murray, Angelica Houston, Owen Wilson, Kate Blanchett, uh, uh, Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum is in it. Big, big cast, uh, and it's a pretty good movie, but what makes this movie particularly oddball is Wes Anderson's use of of puppetry, of stop-motion puppetry for the aquatic life. This is the story of Steve Zissou, who uh, is, is pretty much like a knockoff Jacques Cousteau. He is a famed nature historian or aquatic, you know, a videographer, and he has all these shows and whatnot. Uh, recently, his friend, his partner in crime, his his right hand man, who always appeared in all of Steve Zissou's films, died. He got eaten by the great tiger, or uh, I forget what the what the shark was, but it was this mythical shark that ate his partner. And Steve Zissou makes it a point to find that shark and kill it and avenge his friend's death. And it's a very interesting film, and there you see a lot of marine life, a lot of uh, over-the-top, goofy, fake marine life with all these goofy names, and all the creatures are visually striking, yet you watch it and you realize, oh wait, that's not like CGI or anything, that is stop-motion animation. You know, it's really interesting. So the So you see these creatures moving, and they're not moving fluidly. But they're all kind of like moving rigidly. But it also adds. I mean, if you're, I mean, it's one thing if you're not expecting it, I guess. But if you are expecting that, it kind of adds this like little charm and quirkiness to the film, you know? Because really, all the characters in this movie are pretty goddamn quirky, especially Zeeves, uh, Zeeves, Steve Zissou. So yes. And finally, for me, is kind of a depressing movie when you think of it. It is entitled Enter the Void. From 2009, and what makes this movie entertaining uh, or interesting, as well as super oddball, is it's the direction of Gaspar Noe, but mainly it is the cinematography of Benoit Debris. He did Spring Breakers, which came out a couple years ago. He also influenced uh, Larry Smith, who was a cinematographer for Only God Forgives. I mean, talk about bright, vivid, rich colors. Uh, it, I mean, when you watch one of his movies, especially Enter the Void, you are transported into this other visually exciting or visually trippy world, and it totally fits with Enter the Void. Now, Enter the Void is a film about a U.S. drug dealer who is living in Tokyo, and during a drug deal gone wrong, he ends up getting shot and killed, and basically the story, and this is this movie is like two hours and 20 minutes long, is about his soul exiting his body and traveling around Tokyo and observing the repercussions of his death. All at the same time, his soul is trying to, uh, what it says here in this uh, synopsis, which I I liked uh, this little bit here, it is seeking resurrection. And what's oddball about this, the plotline itself isn't oddball, 
but how they incorporated the visuals with the story itself to tell the story because you can't really tell this story in a in a in a linear dramatic fashion you have to have this this cinematography you have to have these awesome camera shots and angles and movements and beautiful sets and beautiful uh, this this really creepily vivid vividly creepy if that makes any sense atmosphere, you know, and it just absolutely works. And again, all three of these movies, except Mystery Men, aren't oddball, you know, it, 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 like story wise, but the content itself, you know, what makes up the content to me is oddball. As well, all these movies are kind of you don't really see anything like it nowadays especially with with matt's movies well i mean more so like with mystery men and joe versus the volcano you don't see anything like these movies this was these movies came out at a time especially like uh i mean not necessarily enter the void because that's more of an independent film but like mystery men you know the movie came out when audiences still had an open mind you know and maybe not too sure exactly what they wanted studios had an open mind because there wasn't really a market for these kind of superhero movies so it made it interesting, and therefore the director had room to, you know, play around with the film, and, you know, it worked out well, especially for me as a, as a kid. Uh, so yeah, so my three oddball films that, uh, that stuck out but were largely forgotten were Mystery Men from 99, Enter the Void from 2009, and then finally The Life Aquatic from 2004. Now, um, due to the amount of movies, we're going to have to cover 12 movies in two weeks here. So uh, we're not doing any uh, third segment uh, until we get back to our uh, Oscar predictions. And that's going to be the next bonus segment, but that's not going to be next week. So just to give you a heads up on that. And that's going to bring us to the movies. <laughs> Yes, alright, so uh, The movies this week are The Box Trolls, Virunga, and Citizen Four Uh, Where do you want to start, sir? We go with uh, Citizen Four Citizen Four, alright This here is the uh, documentary that uh, basically more or less gave us uh it, it kind of gives the the unfolding of edward snowden and the nsa spying scandal and uh it's okay it, it's shot in what's referred to as a cinema verite style it combines improvisation with the use of the camera to unveil truth or highlight subjects hidden behind crude reality. Uh, and and sometimes referred to as observational cinema. Um, which really makes this not feel like a documentary. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's a good thing. Uh, I, I really felt like this, instead of just letting this film and its revelations and the cryptic way in which you are introduced to said Citizen Four, um, 
instead of letting it play out organically and letting the what is actually being documented be the source of the story, I felt that the this particular style um, kind of hurt the documentary um, somewhat. Now, that's not to say that this is not an engaging film and that you should not see it. It, it is engaging, and you should see this film. If not, just to kind of give you an idea of uh, the mindsets of the people involved, um, the, the fear... <laughs> Um, the reason for all of the secrecy, I, this, there was there, there, there was a lot at stake going into this. And so all of these things I really felt were enough to make a good documentary on its own without having to take into account this specific style to make it feel more like a thriller. Um, I always kind of go back to uh, Dear Joshua. I'm sorry, Dear Zachary. And it, it, it's a documentary that's also in this style and plays out like a thriller. Um, and it's quite frankly about my favorite documentary of all time. But where that story allows the use of that style of filmmaking to play out a little bit more organically, here I think you have something that is scary enough on its own or thrilling enough, depending on how you want to look at it on its own, that I don't think it needed that help. Um, it's gripping. It, it is worth watching, but I just, I didn't, it was hard for me to get through because of this style of filmmaking. It's for, it's not for everybody, um, but that doesn't make it bad overall. I can't stress that enough. Three and a half stars for me. I do like this thing and I think you should watch it, but I don't think this style of filmmaking is going to be for everyone, especially with the subject matter involved. Go ahead, Tim. What do you got? So this is a very intriguing movie. Uh, it's pretty straightforward, and it's kind of it's pretty frightening. And I, there are many aspects of Matt's review that I totally agree with. Uh, it definitely feels like you're watching a legit Hollywood thriller, uh, like one of those suspenseful political thrillers from you know the the late '80s, early '90s. It, the movie is well made, yes. It's eye-opening, sure it is. But it honestly felt more like a like a scare tactic than an, an informative documentary. And I'm not saying like the movie is like geared towards to you know to make you like freak out. I mean the movie is not to make you like question everything the government government does or anything. I mean ultimately it's about Edward Snowden. Oh God, Edward Snowden and what he did and how he's going about doing it and the whole paranoid atmosphere you know they were him and these journalists were in while all this stuff was going on and and at times i, I couldn't tell what story like where they were what they were leaning towards you know well we'll get to Virunga in a little bit and and a lot of the the problems i had with season 4 can easily be reflected on Virunga as well these are both movies. This one, this is a movie that straightforward. It's interesting. You know, you, there doesn't have to be a lot of flair or fluff. It's it's interesting. The movie is like an hour and fifty minutes long, and it's a very entertaining hour and fifty minutes. And I don't. And and again, I just don't know if the do, if this particular documentary was supposed to feel like a thriller. You know, and, and to me, it also felt like Edward Snowden was kind of 
acting at the same time. Like he wasn't like he knew what was going on, so he kind of felt. Like, I got the impression that he was being like his own little celebrity, and I don't know if it's because he's kind of a pompous type of guy or he was just kind of putting on an act. I don't know, Matt, if you felt that at all, but I kind of that kind of came across, and to me that really kind of dampened. Uh, the experience a little bit. Is it still a good movie? Sure it is. Uh, Again, it's entertaining. You learn a little bit from it. However, the information within this movie, uh, I mean, the broad information, you can find it. There's a great PBS documentary about all this that you can easily watch and get some of the same uh, type of information. This is a good movie to watch how everything uh, unfolds not necessarily real time, but exactly how it happens. So it's very interesting. It's very intense. But like I said, it felt more like a Hollywood movie than it did an authentic human expose, uh, if that makes any sense. Um, So this one, I give it 4.5 out of 5. Very good. All right. Where do you want to go from here? Let's do Virunga. Alrighty, Virunga. 2014 documentary film. This one is about the conversa- conversation. Conversation? It's catching, Tim. Stop it. The conservation work <laughs> of rangers within Virunga National Park and the activity of a British company, Soko International, um, which began exploring for oil in the park. Um, okay. The poor Congo... Um, if there has ever been just a completely shit on people in the history of the world, it is definitely the Congolese. Um, the, I mean, here, there they are minding their own business and all of a sudden they're carved out, uh, and colonized. They are then strip mined and subjugated to slavery um, when they can finally get to the point of some form or fashion of independence it's then just ripped right away from them civil war ensues um, all over the resources that are there um, everything from uh, gold uh, to coal and other other things used in electronics and circuit boards and computers, all this stuff comes from there and these people are just fighting amongst themselves um, due to the outside influences of other countries and corporations who are trying to take advantage of the land that is there and the resources that's there. Uh, In the middle of all this is one little national park. It's Virunga National Park. It's where they actually try and protect the last remaining uh, vestiges of the mountain gorillas. And among other things there as well, there's small fishing villages. People live inside this area. And then the government goes and just ups and says to this British company, I am glad for once, finally, that when it came to oil, it wasn't the U.S. Thank God. Look, there are other bad people too. Yay! Um, This British company, Soko International, goes in and gets exploration rights to a lake. (laughs) Like... I mean, I don't understand. Clearly, it's just, it's all the money. I mean, money at the top is is the problem here. Um, and then it goes and breaks down the stories, the individual stories of the people inside um, Virunga, uh, the border situation along it, uh, a journalist who's trying to show the corruption. And, of course, 
the civil strife within that's led by various rebellion uh, rebel factions, uh, chiefly named in here as M23. And really almost some in some ways just the futility of it all. Um, there are comments made by some of these people, a mercenary who says that basically, you know, the Congolese people are not subhuman, but like children, you know, unruly children. And you basically, we just need to colonize them because they just simply can't take care of themselves. Um, these people don't have any desire for peace. They're all money grubbing, greedy people. Um, it's just such a gross mischaracterization, but when you see the kind of internal strife that certain people see all the time, and you see the constant flow of just human suffering and refugees flowing out, you can see how people would come to that conclusion, as wrong as it is. Um, and yet, for all of these amazing stories, and for all of this content that this film is able to embark up and impart to you just like citizen four it goes out of its way to do reenactments when it's not necessary and and kind of drift the reenactment into the actual documentary stuff that was being shot um it goes out of its way in the idea to show you the chaos that war causes uh, and conflicts causes to the detriment of understanding what's actually happening in terms of what you've been seeing. Um, there's a lot of disjointed nature, which I think was done on purpose, again, to kind of jar you and say, how how do you expect these people to, to who live in this scenario to keep track of everything that's going on when you can't even keep track of everything that's going on in an hour and 40 minutes? The problem with that is that it makes it difficult to follow and difficult to care. And then when you see these things that are blatantly done as reconstructive or, um, again, attempts at thriller, um, it takes you out of the story. And in a documentary, that's all you have. Um, but the beauty of it, I thought the story was much more compelling here than it was in Citizen Four, but it does suffer from all the things that I said. So uh, four stars for me on Barungo at the end of the day. And go ahead, Tim. What do you got, sir? This is a very important story to tell. You know, it shows how companies, not all companies, but companies like Soko, it was interesting to see how they deal under the table just to, like, save their ass. You know, so, like, if all these people get murdered, their company isn't attached to that murder. You know, for example, they were talking about how the company outsources security and so they have a fund. They have like a sum of money they give to the security team for funding for whatever. Uh, and Soko claims that they don't know what that funding is for. But really, the security is using that money to build up, to pretty much build this army. You know, to uh, to hire these these uh, mercenaries to go out, the M23, to go out and uh, and take down all these villages, so the company can move in and take over the land. And on top of that, you had the whole story about the gorillas and how they're, you know, going extinct and, you know, just all of this fascinating material and especially seeing all like these, like the, the French woman and the, the, uh, I don't know if he was a general, but he was the chief. I, I, I don't forget what he was, but he was the British guy that was there helping him out. And it was just kind of, see, it was neat seeing how all these stories kind of come together to, 
to, to no, I don't want to say propaganda, but I mean, there's obviously good propaganda, but to show you how important it is for this park to be there. And not only for this park, but all of Africa. You know, there is so much of Africa that can be relate that can uh, that can relate to what's happening in Virunga. And it's important for us, for everybody else in the world, to watch this and realize, hey, you know, something really honestly has to get done. But the flip side to that is that it's also kind of sad because this isn't the first movie about this sort of stuff. And all of us really do know, or does know what's going on, yet big business doesn't only affect uh, Europe, but it definitely affects the United States, and especially this kind of corrupt uh, business as well. So, this is an interesting movie, it's great, however, the biggest downfall it has is that it's, it's overproduced. I mean, there's a lot of it. You know, whenever it's not the story, like, it feels like, okay, well, we need to, or it seems like they were like, well, we got to bridge this story with the next one. We need to connect them somehow. Well, let's do all these shots of the African wild and have the swelling music in the background. Uh, and and let, let's try to evoke an emotion. Like what Matt was saying, the documentaries are about the story. It's about a true story. It's not fictional. What makes a great documentary is when you have a story that tells itself. You know, what I mean by that is that it just happens naturally. You know, you don't need all this fluff. You don't need all this overproduction. That's what kind of made uh, The Act of Killing so interesting uh, is that, yes, they did all this. They, they did have like this visual flair, like during the, the reenactments and stuff. But the movie itself was engrossing, and the reenactments didn't take the focus away from the story itself. And this is kind of what both uh, both Citizen Four and Virunga does. However, I thought Citizen Four handled it a little bit better. It was more of like evenly spread out. Virunga, it was just obvious. And again, the overproduction felt like a the, it made the movie feel like it was more of a National Geographic or Discovery Channel special than an actual, like an engaging, have-to-tell documentary. So I give this one 4.25, I guess. It's an important story, and I did really like it, but the other stuff was anno- was annoying. Yeah, I think 0.75 is enough to give takeoff for that stuff. So, yeah, 0.7. 4.25. I'll go with that. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, all right, well... Tim and I did a little bit of pre-show stuff here. Well, it leaves us with the box trolls, and uh, we did a little bit of pre-show stuff. So we're we're gonna try and wrap this up as quickly as possible here. So the box trolls uh, is what we have left. 2014 American 3D stop motion animated fantasy comedy film based on the novel Here Be Monsters. Now this one has um, a lot of people in here: uh, Ben Kingsley, Tony Collette, uh, Jared Harris, uh, Nick Frost, Simon Pegg. Tracy Morgan, Richard Aoyte. I mean, there's a lot of cool people here doing the voices. And basically, um, this is about a group of people in the Victorian era and some subterraneous trolls known as box trolls who are um, blamed for the disappearance and subsequent murder of a young boy. And it turns out that, of course, the boy is not dead nor kidnapped, but he does live peacefully with these wonderful box trolls. Now, um, 
We have an excellent villain in the visage of Ben Kingsley, and I thoroughly enjoy this movie. Uh, I've, I said it uh, last year, and I think this movie is great. The only problem with this film, you're going to love the visual style, the music is great, the characterizations are really fun. But the one thing that I found is that the story itself gets really bogged down and kind of confusing in the third act. Um, but we're not dealing with a three-act play. We're dealing with a four-act play. Everything works out by the end. But I think that the story gets unnecessarily bogged down in the third act. So much so that you're almost saying, could you please get on with it? That being said, it's got a great setup, a wonderful bad guy, a very interesting cast, and an eclectic style that's both done visually and audibly. Um, go see this movie if you haven't. Get it on Netflix or whatever, however you're going to find it. Get it. It's great. Four stars for me. Very glad that it's one of the Oscar-nominated animated films. Bring us home, Tim. All right, Bike Strolls, it's stylish, it's interesting to look at, it's an interesting film period, it's definitely original, and it's a smart film. However, I thought it just lacked the wit and enchantment that uh, the other films have, like Paranorman and, and, and Coraline especially. You know, just kind of lacked uh, some of that enchantment and awe that, uh, that I really wanted to see. So I give this one 3.75 out of 5. All right, then. Okay, so look at that. I think we're going to do it. <laughs> um, all right, so next week, this is a meaty one, folks. Um, so here we go. We've got a whole bunch of movies. Finding Vivian Mayer, Last Days in Vietnam, The Salt of the Earth, Song of the Sea, The Tale of the Princess Kagaya, and Whiplash. Whew. And here I was thinking that we didn't have to watch any of these damn movies. So I thought we'd watch, you know, apparently I was wrong. We got six movies next week and six movies the following week. But that'll get us back onto our normal schedule after the Oscars. So, I believe we are at the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on. All right, folks. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. We, of course, are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit one. Two, three, four, five. You can get aboard the Information Superhighway, cruise yourself down, and see if you can track down Tim on Twitter. And, of course, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Zach Galifianakis, I can get to say this. I think that if they put a laugh track on Intervention, it would be funny. And this is Tim saying goodnight. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.